We've been looking at the Apostles' Creed for a number of weeks, and today it's uh, my turn, and we're going to look at Article 9, Communion of Saints. While most of us are not sociologists, nor do we spend much time professionally uh, studying human behavior, it is likely that we all make observations of what people are doing around us. Whether they're walking the dog or they're shopping or they're at work, we make observations. We can probably agree that there are some indicators that uh, are surprising to us and and sometimes they lead us into the um, belief that people are very independent. People are very individualistic. People are very private. And we see this over and over again. I would describe myself as a person a little bit more along the edge of the scale when it comes to introvertedness. I'm not much of an extrovert, although I can be because of my uh, day-to-day work and interaction with uh, uh, clients and with the co-workers. Um, I do have a great family, an extended family, and I get to participate with them. And of course, here at Wellspring, I get the opportunity to interact with all of you. Uh, But at the end of a long day, I'm a little bit of an introvert. Maybe you're like that too. Maybe it's just your decompression time. Maybe it's just that time you need to be alone or away. You know, just kind of let it all run out. But I also think that um, there are people who are way more introverted. I like to be able to steer myself away from some of that. And by interacting with you and with my coworkers and with my colleagues and with my customers, uh, I feel that I'm not going to get into that recluse point of life. I'm going to be able to uh, continue to maintain a pretty decent balance on that scale of introvert and extrovert. It is, however, evident that there are people who are really migrating towards individualism. People seek their private time. And there are many reasons for this, and we can't go into all of them today. I'm not an expert. But I think in our observations, we would say that there are people who definitely are trending in that individualistic pathway. Here are some examples that I I came across when I was doing my research today. Recent trends in the United Kingdom reveal a significant shortage of housing. Now, some of this is going to be attributable to immigration and the acceptance of refugees, for sure. But another condition that they discovered when they did their research was that this crisis of a decreasing amount of housing, it was related to the number of households that have only one occupant. And if the present trend continues in the United Kingdom, more than 40% of households will be single occupancy households. So people are deliberately choosing to live on their own. People don't like living together. They don't like rubbing shoulders. They don't like that interaction. They want to retreat from the world. They like their individualism. Now, there's all all kinds of other reasons why people live alone. No doubt about it. Life circumstances sometimes dictate that you live alone. But what they do find is that this trend, it's a choice of living alone. And for those who continue to seek that individualism, they 
deliberately escape from their community. And they easily become withdrawn. They easily become on the periphery of a community. And they become marginalized because people don't see them interacting with others. And they kind of get further shifted off to that side. You know, there's a lack of a willingness to participate and to be engaged. And people drift that way. And they gradually lose their ability to interact with others appropriately and in comfort. And they become more introverted. And isolation provides some semblance of peace and comfort. We all like a little bit of that. But I suggest the isolation or individualism also leads to loneliness and detachment. And in our devices culture today, (laughs) we think there's some way to escape some of that, don't we? People get drawn further and further into what their devices offer them. And they probably have some semblance of connectedness because they've got their device and they can use it. Now, I myself am terrible with technology. I can barely run my phone. I know how to text. I think I've texted Elizabeth and Donna. But I'm not a devices person, and that's just by sheer nature. I like my flip phone. I don't like my Android phone. But anyway, I'm not a divisive person. But in our culture today, I think we could all agree and say that people can get wrapped up in their devices. And they feel like they are connected. But they're connected to their device more than they're connected to the face-to-face, touchy-feely kind of connectedness. You know, it's common to see people so fixed on their devices that they don't even know what they're doing. How many of you have seen people crossing the street against the light reading their device? Of course we have. And these things happen over and over again. An even deeper pursuit of information available on our devices, it it leads further and further down that rabbit hole, as they like to say, into precarious posts, into, into radical posts, and into some things that are very edgy and even mean-spirited. And then people become addicted to that kind of uh, information available to them on their devices. And it's easy to be consumed and react to those things that are posted. You know, we have evidence of what this kind of manifested in our neighborhood. On April 23rd, a man drove his van down Young Street, killing several, injuring many. And the initial speculation as to why this occurred was that the driver of the van had been marginalized. He had been rejected by his peers. And the driver of that van found refuge in the posts of other people who had experienced the same kinds of things in their lives. They had been disconnected from their larger community. They were unable to fit in. They were unable to be accepted by others, and they needed to get revenge. A terrible tragedy. Our very own Laura Pierce writes in the Canadian Christian Youth Magazine. She offers some insight as to how being disconnected and marginalized through the social media may lead to actions that bring harm and pain to others. Here's what Laura writes. It seems the more connected we become through our online worlds, the further away we move from face-to-face physical interactions with one another. We are constantly hearing about the danger of social media pulling us inward and out of touch. However, there is something truly magnificent that occurs when the opposite takes place. When the connections made online transfer to our physical worlds, 
when the virtual becomes reality. I think Laura has hit it on the head. If we don't branch out beyond our devices culture, we are at great risk of further distancing ourselves from our community. So this example was someone who was very out of step in our community and had an extreme outcome. Of course, there are other factors that we will not know or we may not know until much later as to why this tragedy occurred. But I believe you can attribute at least a portion of this to this uh, emphasis on individualism or wanting to be connected but not being able to be connected to the community. Now, I wonder, does this individualistic phenomenon have a wider scope in our community? Are these trends happening even beyond that extreme case? I was extremely interested in a campaign promoted by the largest grocery store chain in Canada. And the advertisement appeared in our newspaper on June 21st of this year, and it caught my attention. And the campaign also included a television commercial. And actually, this was the second year that the campaign had been run. And the campaign was called Eat Together Day. And here's my newspaper. Yes, I subscribe to an ink-on-paper newspaper. It's part of my business so I do that. And this is what it says. We don't care why you <clears throat> sorry, we don't care where you buy your cheese. Honestly, we don't. You can buy it from us or someone else. This isn't an ad trying to sell you some fancy Swiss cheese. Right now there's something we actually think is more important than what we eat, and that's how we eat. We should all spend a little more time eating together. When we eat together, we don't just fill our tummies, but also our souls. We don't want to bring science into it, but it's even been proven that eating together is healthier. And science aside, we know something about it also feels right. A meal with your friends is where you hear about new ideas. It's where we challenge each other and try to solve the world's problems, or just hear about what's new on TV, and that you should Totally check it out. So join us on June the 22nd for Eat Together Day because life happens when we eat together. Are some of you familiar with that campaign? Had you seen that before, uh, even on the TV commercial? I thought it was quite um, enlightening. So it seems that these leaders in the grocery store have come to the conclusion that uh, the, the isolation and loneliness that they see is actually a huge detachment from our community. And they were telling us and hoping that we would choose some things that are more healthy for us. Eating together on purpose or even impromptu is a positive way to connect with our community. There's lots of other examples of our community gathering together. Bill Ryan mentioned Rib Fest. So all of Scarborough will be eating ribs all weekend. And that's a community event drawing people together. And hopefully it uh, does bring that connectiveness. So let's jump into the fact of what it means for the church. Is it possible that this condition of isolation or individualism exists in our church? Do people want isolation at church? Is there a deliberate decision on the part of people to avoid interaction with others at church? Some churches accept this. They call it the messy church 
formula. They acknowledge that there are many rough edges and fragile identities and the likelihood of not having people always in full agreement with one another. And the formula accepts the fact that there will be a multitude of differences that they can overcome together and they will find ways to accept differences and in, in part draw people together and include people no matter what qualities they have. So when we choose isolation and loneliness in the church, we're missing out. There is a wonderful opportunity to uphold and encourage and serve together in our church. So we're going to look at Article 9, the communion of saints. And uh, we're going to try a couple things here. Which way do I point, Andrew, at you? So here's some fun facts that you might want to know in case you don't know much about the... um, Uh, the Apostles' Creed, 109 words, and it was not written by the 12 apostles, but they likely spoke uh, the words at some point, and they believed the words. The creed is a Latin word, which means I believe, and it's a statement of faith. By the second century, the creed appeared in a written form, and it then uh, kind of birthed other creeds thereafter. And it was referred to also as the rule of faith. So it's the convictions of the apostle, and they are Trinitarian. We've talked about this in the previous times, about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's all three together. It's used as the foundational teaching for faith in Christ, and it was provided initially to inquisitive Jewish people. And it became a declaration of personal faith for converts to Christianity at their time of baptism. They recited the creed. Uh, the creed proclaims and use of specific phrases were used to refute Gnostic culture. At the time that the apostles were, there was a lot of Gnosticism, and the creed helped them refute that. And that phrase that has become so important to us in the apostles' creed, I believe in God, it's a Greek free phrase, meaning I am believing into God. And so you immerse yourself into what you believe that God is for you. And it's professing a commitment to a relationship with God. So today when we look at Article 9, our key verse, the overarching verse, is Hebrews 10, 24, and 25. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, But let us encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. R.C. Sproul reminds us that the details found throughout the gospel as taught and exhibited by Christ reveal a social interaction quality rather than a solitary belief system. The church is meant to be a community coming together together. In an interactive way. Similarly, Scottish theologian James Bannerman reminds us that the same work of grace that's offered by God at the point of salvation removes the obstacles that hindered humanity's union with humanity. And in the fellowship of one faith and one Lord, humanity discovers a new and mightier bond of attachment and unity with fellow believers. 
So the natural outcome of our salvation should be evident expression of joining together with other believers. However, some research has shown as they look at churches that there's still a disenchantment with organized religion and the institutionalized church. Some people contend that the church is outdated. It's saddled with a cumbersome uh, number of traditions. Now, conversely, there are people who submit that the church has migrated too far away from our core biblical teachings, that the church has succumbed to the pluralism and individualism that some people are defined by. And research has shown that our society has shifted towards that individualism, as we've looked at a few moments ago. And in terms of the community that we are and the culture we have, there's more secular humanism evident. And this is perhaps in part due to a sense of not belonging to a larger community, a detachment from a larger group of people. And as these conditions percolate in our churches, there's potential for fragmentation and dissatisfaction with what the church provides. And so people who are yearning for devotion to spirituality, encouragement, and discipleship, they lose the sense of belonging because they can't feel like they are contributing to the whole body and they're not finding some of those things they are looking for. And potentially as individualism creeps into the church, there's a decrease in the zeal for the communion of saints. Comedian Lenny Bruce proclaims, people are leaving churches and returning to God. We need to be careful that our churches are not uh, minimizing what God has for us. And so sometimes people are disillusioned and dissatisfied. It almost becomes like a consumerism that churches are heading towards. There's not enough spiritual fulfillment and value in the experience of the community. Researchers continue to state that church behavior and content is described more like a gathering of a religious consumer society. The church becomes a place I go to get my God fix for the week, a place where I get my, uh, my encouragement from my favorite preacher. The church is a place I can attend, enjoy the worship music that I find uplifting and are uh, my taste. The church is a convenient place where I can meet up with my Christian friends. The church is a provider who exists primarily for my personal spiritual satisfaction and my religious pleasure. It becomes that concept of meism. This really looks like a consumerist religious experience rather than a fully encompassing and inclusive experience. The communion of saints is inclusive. It is an emphasis on unity. We need to look at that more carefully. Interestingly, I, I picked this out of one of the works I was looking at. The church is not a corporation selling snack-sized portions of religion to the masses who crave a few ounces of spirituality in their lives to provide relief. We can't just pick and choose those one or two things and think that we've met our quota for the week. 
So what should the church should be like? The church should be the visible gathering of the saints for worship and for service and for representing Christ locally, regionally, nationally, and globally. We are to be the church together. I'd like to uh, uh, get into a few scripture passages here, and Donna's got the microphone, and we're going to look at, first of all, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12 to 27. The body is a unit, though it is made up of many parts. And though all its parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free. And we were all given the one spirit to drink. Now the body is not made up of one part, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has arranged the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has combined the members of the body, and has given greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. And each one of us are a part of it. So each one sitting here today, and even those who couldn't be here today, that Uh, do come with us. We are all part. We all have a role. We're all important. We're interconnected. We can't be separate parts. It just doesn't make sense. You don't see a bunch of feet just walking around without any of the part of the body, do you? They're all important. They're all connected. We are all part of the body, and we all have a role, and we all have gifts and talents to offer. And it's best when we do it together in unity, in agreement. And yes, we might not always totally agree on everything. And we'll talk a little bit about that in in a few moments. I also want us to read Ephesians 4, verse 1 to 16. Emily's got that. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. 
one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower un, lower earthy regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to tell the whole universe. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming, deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love. As each part thus does its work. Thank you. And so these two passages... Just they outline so beautifully what it is to be part of the communion of saints. What it means to be joined together in the body of Christ in a church. So ideally, when the church meets together, people are collectively recognizing each other as a part of the body. We are set apart. We are sanctified. We are filled with the Holy Spirit. And we are devoted followers of Jesus Christ. And that condition brings us together. And it's not us um, individually, but it is us together. Jesus also prayed for us in this way. My prayer is uh, John chapter 17, verse 20 to 23. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. In them and you in me, may they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. So in the three scriptures here, We want to make sure that we are in unity, that it's all about us together. The sum of all the parts is far greater than the individual parts. Churches, unfortunately, that are predominantly consumeristic or individualistic can gradually drift away from the core purposes. And Ephesians 4.14, then Emily reminds us about that, alerts us to the potential harm of every wind of teaching and the cunning and the craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. 
And then the antidote is given by the Apostle Paul in the next two verses. Speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. The church is meant to be a holy spiritual entity, joining people together in community, even when we have quirks and quarks. In a larger scope, our individual churches should not only be devoted to that uh, local unification, but it should also be willing to accept what's happening with the church down the street or in the city or across the country and beyond. We need to find less ways to differentiate ourselves. We need to embrace the things that are common and avoid majoring on the minor. You've heard of that, right? All those little nitpicky things that we can build up and that even Christians want to do. And, And we need to minimize the times that we want to harp on the minor. Jesus even anticipated the fact that the gates of hell will never prevail against the church. However, Jesus did not give a guarantee that the church would be shielded from the attacks of Satan. I think Satan wants to find those ways to divide us, to bring those little nitpicky things into us, into our lives. So what is it also about the church that may be um, uh, taking us away from this unity? Recently, I reread this book called Jim and Casper Go to Church. Jim Henderson is a former pastor. Matt Casper is an atheist. The project that they have agreed to is to visit 12 churches in the U.S. and for Casper, the atheist, to offer his observations about everything that he experiences at those churches. Now, Casper is an atheist, but he is at least familiar with many biblical concepts. And he actually offers some brilliant insight into the outsider critically looking in at the church. If you want to look at the book, you'd want to pay attention to some of the things that, as a visitor into those services, that he observes. Sometimes it's even as simple as the terminology we use. Those phrases that, you know, we, we've sort of used for 50 years that wouldn't make a lot of sense to a stranger coming into a church. So here's a spoiler alert. There are two main points that I got from this book that Casper raises that are important for us to consider. Firstly, Casper repeatedly comments on the perceived level of authenticity of the people and the authenticity of the service content. And yes, he's only there for 75 minutes. It's a one-shot deal. But here he is making these observations. Casper sees lots of examples of very polished presentations, utilizing the highest tech equipment to dazzle and to impress. And then he hears how people call for the offering, and he critically reviews the lyrics of the songs that are sung. And he interprets the interactions he has with the people. And he looks at the entire physical setup of the churches. Sometimes he is very off-put by what he sees. And he often comes to the conclusion that the church should radiate authenticity. 
Secondly, Casper comments on the apparent lack of commitment to doing the things that would truly make a difference for the cause of Christ in the area where the church resides. And a call to action for the good of the community needs to be part of what the church does. It makes the church effective. It allows the church to be connected. It invites people in to be part of the communion of saints. So Casper identifies the churches, the people that are less genuine in their faith, people that are more interested in the optics and the presentation rather than what the core meaning and value of the church and being a follower of Christ is about. And Casper identifies the importance of demonstrating to the unchurched that the church has a sincere interest in their physical, social, and spiritual beings. The Apostles' Creed proposes that a church should be holy and a community of saints. Last week, Laura talked uh, about the church universal. And the previous week, uh, Bill Ryan talked about the holiness that was important. And so the Apostles' Creed, we need to be set apart, we need to be consecrated, and we need to think not only locally, but regionally and beyond. The New Testament Greek word for church is ecclesia, which means those called out. And it's comprised of those called out to be God, by God, to have a peculiar relationship with God. And it's to be committed to accomplishing spiritual tasks, using the gifts of the people, and using it for the glory of God. Now that term peculiar is not something that we see often in scripture. Am I on the right slide? Maybe not. I'm uh, back up one or two here. Peculiar. It's a, it's a relationship with God. It's an Elizabethan word, and it really translates as treasured or special people. It infers that the people of the church would be considered odd or counterculture by those outside the church. The term may also be described as a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a people belonging to God. And we see those terminologies used throughout uh, the New Testament. So what is the communion of saints? I believe it's the antidote for the individualism that might exist in our, our culture today. The communion of saints is a union with Christ and with fellow followers of Christ. And it's an ongoing relationship with God and the followers of God. The communion of saints is in a common union of believers. It encompasses the believers that have departed the earth as well. An interesting concept. Those that have gone on before us are also the saints in communion with us today. Their legacy is still important. And a local church that is practicing or enjoying the communion of saints is accepting of the Holy Spirit, even when it gets a little bit edgy or a little unpredictable or a little disorderly. The, the, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit allows us to continue to build that communion of saints.
The book of Acts reveals how the early church practices. Moses has the verses I want to read. Acts chapter 2, verse 42 to 47. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he, he had needed. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So there's that early church description of what was happening in that community at that time. And it just reminds us again of Hebrews 10 and 24 to 25. Don't forsake the gathering together. Rather, join into the life of the church. Meet for worship and prayer. Offer and receive encouragement. Receive and offer spiritual teaching. Be open to accountability and participate in the works of service. It should be natural outcome of, of followers of Christ to seek a fellowship in a church setting. We're all part of the body. We have something to offer, and it's important that we offer them. The communion of saints within our church also affords us the opportunity to share in sacraments and ordinances as Jesus directed his followers to observe. And when we have these, and we're reasonably successful in observing these and demonstrating these actions, we can assuredly make a difference in our church and beyond our church. Even though we have a developing world that is becoming post-Christian, the church, you and I, still have something to offer. So it's imperative that the communion of saints of the church must prayerfully proceed in building and maintaining a community that exalts God, that disciples the followers of Christ, that encourages each person that is searching for spiritual truth and that we are committed to acts of service, demonstrating the love of Jesus to a world that is hurting and in great need. Well, what do we know about saints? Well, the saints may refer to the early evangelists. The saints may also be identified as people martyred for proclaiming Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2. To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord and ours. So those sanctified in Christ are called to be holy. We as followers of Christ, are saints. We don't often think about that. <laughs> we don't often ascribe that title to ourselves, do we? But we are saints. 
The saints are the people who are dedicated to enhancing a relationship with God and with one another. Saints, the Greek word, I'm not going to uh, 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 pronounce it here. It means holy and intertwined with that aspect of sanctification in our lives. The sanctification refers to being set apart and belonging to Christ and committed to the acts of service. So when when the saints are in fellowship with other saints, we begin to have that communion. We begin to have an effect for Jesus Christ in our world today. So how does the Apostles' Creed Article 9 have an impact at Wellspring? So we are a small church. And in Canada, they say there are more than 8,000 small churches. We are intergenerational. We are multicultural. We have a very high percentage of people attending and participating. And there are a lot of benefits that a small church offers. A shift in emphasis from pursuing numerical growth. And an emphasis on following our biblical mandate. And deepening our spiritual level. And understanding what we're called to do. In a small church, we have the ability to engage in um, uh, mentoring. And we begin to have that opportunity for upholding one another in many different ways. At Wellspring, our core values, we've had them listed here, of spirituality, communion, and mission. They dovetail beautifully into this um, uh, communion of saints. And when we consider the community and the mission and the number of people participating, we make the list, and it's very long. And we've seen Adam House and Street Connection and our Craft Nook. We have Awana. We have our Early Years Program. We have our Toronto City Mission Program. We've connected with Young Street Mission. We've had ESL. We have an Oasis Bible Study. The list goes on. And so when I reflect on the kind of community that has existed here I think of friendships and relationships that have been birthed and developed that exhibit the qualities of a communion of saints. I think of the adult Sunday school class, the Berean class, and today we still have members or participants of that class. That class began when the church was at Vaughan Road from 1947 to 1967. Those people today still have that relationship with one another. They are engaged in their friendship. They are encouraging people. It's really a great result to to, uh, cheer. When I think of our church as a communion of saints and the ministry that we have one unto another, I think recently of Sophia being here. Our congregation embraced Sophia. We cared for her. We invested in her. We encouraged her. She, in return, she offered her gifts and talents in many ways. And she had an array of experiences, some that were not so good and some that were incredibly good and made a valuable impact on her. And so when we think about our communion of saints and how we were able to minister with Sophia, that is an intentional demonstration of the communion of saints. When I think of the willow tree community, that comes in here week by week. The children and the youth 
who come to the programs and they are accepted here and they are encouraged here. And yes, there might be some heavy wear and tear, but we can be glad that the time that these young people spend in our church is our opportunity to invest into them. We build friendships. We offer discipleship. This is a time where they can be in our presence, and it's an opportunity for us to offer an alternative influence to these young people and allow them to have other options for things they want to accomplish in their lives. When we join together at Wellspring, we're able to demonstrate the ordinance of communion. It's meant to redirect our focus on the sacrifice Jesus made for us. And we're reminded that we prepare our hearts in advance for our communion. Don't let anything hinder us from partaking of communion. And the Apostle Paul also reminds us some of the importance. And he had some people who who had been coming and that they were treating communion like a meal. And Paul redirected them and said, no, eat at home. When you come for communion, it's in remembrance of the sacrifice of Christ. So when we observe communion, we do so together in unity with the purpose of remembering the sacrifice of Christ. When we worship together and song together and week by week as we have our leaders, it's not about wanting our favorite music. It's not about deciding whether the music is somewhat more spiritual, but rather when we come together, consciously decide that we are singing together in worship and praise to God. Even if we have a wide range of musical preferences, we can still be united, blended together in the worship music that we have. When we bring our tithes and offerings together, we're agreeing that we're supporting the ministries of this church. And we're trusting that the resources are used with the best possible stewardship. Wellspring has many elements that allow us to be called a communion of saints. We should continue to strive with one another in the church to be providers and receivers of the ministry that we are called to do as followers of Christ. Our uniting together with each using our own gifts and talents with the determination to be interactive rather than individualistic will be important to the health and the stability of our church and will be absolutely necessary for encouraging people, providing discipleship, and spurring us on to acts of service, social activism. That will define our church as a communion of saints. My friends and my fellow communion of saints, (laughs) may we continue to agree together to make unity a priority in our church. May we agree together to be inclusive, supporting and encouraging one another to everyone who enters this place in search of a spiritual experience. May we agree together to present the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit as the foundation of our faith. May we agree together to be ambassadors and representatives of Christ in the community beyond these walls and even within these walls when the community comes to us. 
May we agree together that the church should be a genuine example of communion of saints. Let's pray. Father, together we gather in your name, and we do want to be in unity. And Father God, we do realize that you have set us apart, that we as your followers are chosen, we are a royal priesthood, we are your children. And that you do call us to uh, be engaged with the communion of saints. That we are to be involved. That we are not just here for a few snippets of spiritual enlightenment. But rather that we are here to be involved. That we are here to join together. And Father, just as our experience and my experience has been with our small group that gathers together now, we uphold one another in prayer. We encourage one another in our small group, and it's a tremendous experience. Father, I pray that our experiences here as the church as a whole would continue to enjoy the encouragement and the support of one another. And may we agree with one another that we all have something to offer and that we're all integral in the body of Christ here at Wellspring. For these things we pray. Amen.